Hey, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. It's good to have you here. I'm going to welcome you with a warning. If you have walked in tonight carrying a secret, I suggest you guard it well. Because if it's just come into your head, push it out. Danny Shapiro has a way of just kind of absorbing, sensing the secret that you've carried in. She has this extraordinary gift for winkling those secrets out of people. And people tell her things that you would not believe. Have you listened to her podcast? I just marvel. Yeah, I just marvel out of the things that people tell her. So what is it about Danny Shapiro and secrets? Well, she was the family secret in her childhood. She has a podcast called Family Secrets. And the words family secret appear on the fourth page of her new novel, Still, this isn't a one-way street. I, too, have a way of getting family secrets out of people. Danny Shapiro is the author of memoirs and novels. She's the host of the podcast, Family Secrets, and her new novel is titled Signal Fires. Please give her a warm welcome to the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater. You do have a way of winkling secrets out of people. What's your technique? What's your secret? What is your secret? (laughs) (laughs) It's so great to be with you, Carrie. I think I I listen with compassion. Maybe that has something to do with it. Although I feel like all my life I've had a big tell me your secrets neon sign over my head. You do? Yeah. People what? Because people would just kind of offer up their deepest, darkest confessions to you? Well, once I started writing memoir, what I realized was that I would make a new friend, say, I would move to a new town and make a new friend, and I would have coffee with that friend, and that friend would proceed to tell me um, their deepest, darkest darkest (laughs) secret, and never ask me anything about myself. And and what I realized (laughs) is that what they were really trying to do was level the playing field, Mm. um, that they felt that they knew a lot about me. Um, So they were sharing a lot about themselves. One of the things that we were talking about downstairs is that I I think you you listen without a sense of shock or prurience. You're not, people feel like they can tell you things because you're not going to run away and say, you're not going to believe what so-and-so just told me. I mean, you take this in with a great generosity, I think. And I, I guess I wonder how you reached that, that kind of demeanor, that acceptance. I think somewhere along the way, I started to really understand that underneath all of our various external trappings and our CVs and our stories about ourselves we're all kind of the same. And we have the same feelings. We have the same um, fear that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us as much. That right. We all have, we, we've all experienced that kind of shame. Or, you know, one uh, year, maybe about 10 years ago, I was teaching a large group of people a retreat. And I looked out at this audience of, a couple of hundred people, and I said, here's a writing prompt. I want you to write the thing 
that if anyone knew about you, you would die of mortification. Oh my God, what? You have three minutes to do it. Oh, what? And then when you're done, you can rip it up, you can burn it, you can throw it away. Just go, just start writing. And I was sitting you know, up on sort of a dais, and I had a good view of the crowd. And I can tell you, no one hesitated. Really? No one sat back and thought, shame, shame, what would that be? Shame. What about. could that possibly be that I could... No one hesitated. And that was such a, an interesting sort of revelation to me. But the deeper one, actually, was that what if I... And I would never do this, because this would be a cruel and terrible thing to do. What if I had said, just kidding, now you all have to share. <laughs> That's right. And what I realized is that actually the whole room would just be in tears and would feel this sense of um, solidarity and understanding and, oh, is that what you were afraid of? That's not so bad. So it just, and it, it that, that came, you know, that was hard won for me, but I really did come to know that and believe that. And it helps me to... Um, feel like I can I can connect and that people can connect with me on a pretty profound level. I'm not so good at cocktail party chatter. <laughs> right, the meaningless kind of talk. Yeah. What What do you think is the power in the naming of that shame? These these people that were at your retreat, and then the I guess studying it or looking at it in in ink, you know, in, I put it down, can't take it back. This is it. What do you think the power is in that? Well, it's interesting because that's really a private moment, right? That's right. But even though it's a private moment and even though no one else is going to see it, there's a leap that happens of actually naming it, writing it down, seeing it there, um, that is terrifying, for many people. And what is the power of it? I think it's the beginning of a sense that there is, um, that, that there's something that is liberating mm-hmm. and freeing in being able to just say the thing. Um, when we have secrets, we're really not letting ourselves be known. And when we're not letting ourselves be known, then... Um, we're not really, in a way, that's ungenerous. Um, if I can let myself be known, then you're more likely to let yourself be known, and on it goes. And so, I mean, I can tell you that on my podcast, at the end of every episode, I'll ask a guest, do you wish you hadn't found this out? Or do you wish that you hadn't revealed this? And not one guest has said yes. I wish I hadn't known. Not one. Because there is this... Um, sense of liberation. I mean, this is the vulnerability that someone like Brene Brown writes about, right? The, the power in letting yourself be seen. She, I've thought a lot about some of the things that she writes about the dangerous stories that we tell ourselves in intersection with some of the work that you're doing. She talks about this story that we tell ourselves about lovability. And so often, it's a distorted sense of lovability. If people knew this about me, if they knew this secret, 
I would be seen as unlovable. And so my life is dedicated to guarding this secret. Right, which paradoxically um, actually creates a kind of unlovability. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I mean, are there at the center of a lot of the people that you're talking with, and maybe your own experience with this, is there this sense that this has defined who I am and people will judge me in a way that is not at all generous or compassionate. And so my life is pretty much committed to making sure that no one ever knows this about me. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and that creates, it's like, it's, like a, it's like a closed door. It creates such a sense of um, kind of encasement right. and of, of a, a, a lack. I mean, we think, we live in a culture where vulnerability I mean, it's a buzzword, but vulnerability is scary. We're all supposed to be confident and present these polished fronts right. and filtered on social media. And, um, and there's nothing that's real about that. And yet that's the way that our culture, that's what our culture seems to reward. But I actually think that um, the deeper rewards are in allowing ourselves to be seen and known. I mean, when, when do you think you, you really got comfortable with this sense of vulnerability? And I ask that knowing that you grew up in a family for which appearances were pretty important, right? And hiding the truth of who you were and who your parents were. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just thought of, when you said that, I thought of what it was like to talk with my mother, even as a young adult. And and or go shopping with her, and she would say, "How do you want to look?" Really? Yeah. Like not not what you want to wear, or <laughs> like, how do you want to look? How do you want to present yourself? And um, you know that's an old habit that dies hard. But that was really something um, I was very much um, really born and bred to have a kind of perfect polished facade. Um, it didn't do me any favors as I entered young adulthood. So when was it? I think that it was probably well into my 30s. Um, And, you know, writing is something that teaches me so much about how to live. I mean, each each one of... I, I, I mark my life both in terms of... Um, I have one child, so both in terms of motherhood and how old my son was at any given moment, and in terms of what book I was writing. Um, And the books that I've written have taught me so much about how to live. And um, there is one memoir in particular, my memoir, Devotion, um, Mm -hmm. that really, it was about a kind of excavation, a sort of early midlife existential crisis, spiritual excavation um, that, that where I was asking the question, what do I believe? And I was afraid when that book came out that no one would read it, that it would be... I mean, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. Um, I had complicated relationships with each of my parents in different mm-hmm. ways. I lost my father young. Um, that's all in the book. You know, I... I became a mother and had a a son who was very sick as an infant. That's also in the book. And I thought to myself, would you have to be a formerly Orthodox Jewish 
um, uh, mother of one child who was sick as a baby who lost her father when they were, they were young, who has an existential midlife crisis in order to be my reader. And, That's great. And what happened when the book came out was my, um, my inbox was flooded with responses from readers, and what they all said was, you've told my story. Wow. Um, and it was men and women and old and young and um, every religious background or non-religious background, atheists. It just, I seemed to have struck a universal chord by telling my very particular specific story. And I think that that's actually what does connect us is our really specific stories when we're brave enough um, to, to share them or to just feel like we can um, own this is who I am, this is the sum of my life, this is the measure of my days. And there's something about that that I think um, creates a real sense of um, connectedness. I, I love that because in some ways you're saying there's a divinity at the center of that and that is this idea that we're all connected and that divinity doesn't mean I've experienced Danny's faith the way or I've experienced a faith the way Danny has experienced her faith but it is a conviction that at the heart of it there is human connection and that's the exemplar of it isn't it exactly exactly and and, and, you know, when I was, the way that I was raised, it was us and them. Really? Oh, very much so. Um, there outside was, of the Orthodox Outside community. of the Orthodox community, outside of the Jewish community, outside, but particularly the Orthodox community. This is the way we do things. Um, and I never felt comfortable with that. Um, I never felt, um, I didn't understand the the wisdom of that or the kindness of that mm-hmm. or the... Um, and I think look, a, lot of, a lot of religions um, do versions of this. It right. certainly is not um, just Orthodox Judaism. Um, but one of the realizations I had was that all-or-nothing way of thinking, for me, if it was going to be all-or-nothing, I was definitely going to go with nothing. Um, and that I had to actually find my path. I had to find my way and and another thing that I realized during that period of time was all I did was open myself up um, I thought I'm going to live in the questions I'm not looking for answers um, what would it be to just ask these questions and um, see what happens I'm not going to go to India I'm not going to go to Israel I'm not going to I'm, I'm not I'm, <laughs> you're not going to eat pray I'm not going to eat pray love I'm not, I'm not looking for answers out there and the most amazing thing happened because I live in a rural part of New England um, it's not a bustling metropolis um, and when I opened myself up almost immediately people started entering my world my orbit in this almost mystical way, it was I, I met an extraordinary Buddhist um, mindful, mindfulness teacher that many of you um, may be familiar with now, named Sylvia Borstein, who was yes. one of the great, oh, absolutely, one of the great mindfulness teachers. She became first my teacher, then my mentor, then one of my dearest friends. Wow! I met a great rabbi who was doing 
um, Torah study, studying the Old Testament, a friend of mine asked if I wanted to join a Torah study group, which would have had me running for the hills. Mm-hmm. But I was, in the, I was saying yes instead of saying no. So I said yes, and then it turned out that it was really like a book club about Genesis. We were reading it as literature, and that's my jam. So I was suddenly really, really engaged with, you know, this, the whole idea of the Bible essentially as people behaving badly, <laughs> you know. And, and, then, and then finally, um, a, uh, a yogi, um, a, a, a brilliant writer named Stephen Cope, who um, I also met completely by happenstance. This all happened because I opened myself up and the universal threads that connect all of us began to spin their web. One of the other stories that I think, I I don't know if they lead, if it leads to secrets, but it, it leads to kind of a shrinking inside is this idea of creativity and how the exterior culture judges creativity. Who gets to be creative and who doesn't? I mean, think about the way people will diminish, you know, maybe you do a different job during the day, but you have this wonderful outlet as a creative. But how do you talk about that to people? It's often kind of diminished. And I think if... I'm just, I'm interested in your view on this. I think if people felt freer to let that creative flag fly, um, there'd be more acceptance. Okay, you don't make huge money from your art, but it feeds your, it nourishes who you are. You must see this in some of your retreats and in some of your interactions. I'm curious about how, how you view it. I see it all the time, and also... Um, that same diminishment happens even um, to uh, artists and writers who uh, who do um, have a career and make. I mean, I, I wrote a book called "Still Writing." Yeah, because that's right. because regularly I would be at um, you know social events and invariably or a dinner party and someone would say, "So are you still writing?" You know, <laughs> and and i you know, and I felt like saying, "Are you are you, are you still doing that brain surgery thing?" I mean, how's 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 your law practice treating you? Are you still are you still an attorney? Um, and every, I, I came to realize I actually did a little study, uh, and I asked every well-known artist, photographer, um, writer that I would run across um, in my travels whether they encountered the same thing, and every single one of them. Did you know artists whose work hangs in the fi- hangs in the finest museums in the world? Are you still painting? You still, what, what is you still that? doing that sculpture thing? <laughs> um, what what is that? I think that it's hard for us to take in the idea of a a life in which something is created out of nothing. Mm. Um, there's also, to go back to sort of the culture that we live in, there are steps you take. You, you know, you, you, you go to school and then um, people start asking you in seventh grade where you're going to go to college. And then you go to college and people ask you before you even get there what you're going to major in. And way before you graduate, what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And there really, I think, is a sense um, that 
that we have that there is a path mm-hmm. and that the key to a successful life, and we could define success, but you know, to a successful life is to follow that path. And creativity doesn't follow that path. Right. And artists don't follow that path. And every, every writer who you talk to has a different journey to having become a writer. And, and so when I teach, one of the, and when I lead retreats, and when I talk to people who are starting out or, or, or who, have, um, who do this kind of work as, as hobbies, um, I think there's such a knee-jerk feeling of, oh, it's just this thing I do, or devaluing it. Right. And what that all boils down to is permission. Um, and no one out there is going to give you permission. Um, no one out there is going to say, um, why don't you really carve out this hour every morning before your kids get up? Or why don't you spend an hour after you get home from work making this thing, doing this thing that is sacred to you? No one's going to do that. It has to come from us. And... And that is, I think, the key, whether it's published writers with many books to their name or someone who's just um, deriving great joy and pleasure from knitting or making jewelry or um, uh, gardening. Or, I mean, I think we think of these things as squeezing them into the margins That's of our right, lives right. while everything else um, once everything else is accomplished and we've checked every box, maybe we can do that, but that it's frivolous. And um, I would argue that it's the opposite of frivolous, that it's where we uh, find ourselves. Right. Yeah, I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday, and this is somebody who had had a very public career as a diplomat. And the person doing the interview asked, well, what are you doing these days? And they talked about um, doing watercolors, and it was skipped over completely as, isn't that a cute little hobby that you've done now that your public life is over? There was a, you know, there was a kind of an unacknowledged, I guess, um, interest there about why that was the art that this person, or why that was the creative expression that this person had turned to, and maybe how that intersected with this very public life as a diplomat. It seems like a missed opportunity not to know more about that, because that's also... um, Our lives are lived in chapters, and so this very public chapter, or, you know, I think about the chapter of raising a family, or, um, you know, we have our childhood chapter, we have our young adult chapter, we have our midlife chapter. And, um, and if we're lucky enough to live long lives, we have chapters that are after um, the big career or the you know, set of accomplishments that we're going to be judged by. And, and why devalue that chapter? Right. And also, why not really understand um, why are you drawn to this? You know? What chapter do you think you're in in <laughs> your life? <laughs> that was a softball. You served it right up. I'm feeling very um, deeply grateful and fortunate right now mm. um, because I just had a big birthday. I turned 60. Happy birthday. Oh, you know, ooh. <laughs> and 
I'm not winding. I'm not winding down. Um, if anything, I feel like I'm in the most creative time in my life, um, and one in which I'm taking risks and feel freer to take mm-hmm. risks than I ever have before, both creatively and also in terms of different kinds of storytelling. Um, it's a very particular moment. I realized at some point during the pandemic, um, I was asked to record the audiobooks of some of my earlier books, and one of them was my memoir, Slow Motion. And so I'm in a sound booth recording this audiobook of Slow Motion, which was a, a memoir that I wrote in my early 30s, but was very much about my childhood and my early 20s and my sort of rebellious, reckless early 20s and the loss of my dad. And I realized as I was recording it that I was much closer to the age that my parents were when they were in the car crash that took my father's life and that my son was essentially the age that I was (laughs) when I was that hot mess. Right. And there was something about those worlds colliding that was so powerful for me. And thinking about now being, um, you know, I think we can so easily, like um, the diplomat that you were talking about, be seen suddenly as less relevant because um, we're not at the beginning. Right. And um, beginnings are great, but... I think I'm in the sort of thick of the middle in this place that is um, where there's a lot of freedom to take risks. Um, and, I'm, and I'm just so grateful for that. One of the things that, um, in listening to your podcast and reading your memoirs, I know you have given some thought to and heard a lot about the character of shame. Uh, I, I'm curious about Eight, eight seasons, starting your eighth season of the podcast? Yes. Curious about what you've now come to understand, other than shame can really distort your life and your identity. But other than that, what do you, what do you understand about why so many of us carry shame and what it means? I would add to the shame sandwich trauma Mm. Um, and all kinds of trauma Um, trauma is also a buzzword so I want to be careful with it but you know there's 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 big trauma and then there are the traumas that we experience you know over the course of 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 living and like if you've ever fallen on like I, I, I remember falling on the street one day walking from a lunch and I was wearing stupid stupid platform shoes and it was a sunny day and um, it was the middle of the day and I just went down, (laughs) I was walking with a friend and I went down, you know, and really sort of scraped myself up, but the feeling I had instantly was, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, and getting back up on my feet and it was shame it was vulnerability it was the feeling of oh, that didn't just happen. I'm going to just pretend that just didn't happen and keep walking even if I'm, like, bleeding. I'm going to just keep going. I I fell down Saturday. Saturday. This big scrape on my... Yeah. It was so embarrassing. Embarrassing. 
Right, and why we're human beings, right? Well, but but there's that. So that's an example of a like a very small human thing that happens to all right. of us. But I think that traumas and secrets are like little micro traumas, or sometimes not so micro. Um, they make us feel that we're doing something wrong. That. Um, again, that no one would understand that there's something the matter with us. And so, I mean, one of the things I've seen in now 70-plus interviews that I've done that are real deep dives on family secrets is that that's why the secret is kept. If I speak this, you're not going to... You're, you're going to shun me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I, I'm too afraid to take that risk, so I'm going to stay in the safe zone. But I do think that it attaches itself to trauma and also to move all through the kind of range of traumas. It's so often people say, well, this was bad, but it wasn't as bad as. And, you know, there's always something worse, but it's almost a disavowing. It's like, it's like putting it into a context right. of this is really rough, but... Other people have it rougher. Um, and I think that that also comes from that place of, of shame. I mean, you put that idea at the center, I think, of, of signal fires, where each character has a shame to bear, and then there's this traumatic incident that the family is all, in different ways, dealing with. And, you know, I I wondered what... I guess what new questions you were asking yourself about it as you were conceiving of the dynamic of this family. I was thinking a lot about interconnectedness mm-hmm. and and also about being what it is to be known or not be known. Right. And you know, at the heart of Signal Fires is the fabric that I was talking about is that sense of um, interwovenness, interconnectedness. When I was speaking to you about devotion and the way that that invisible threads just started winding itself, you know, in this beautiful way into this tapestry, when I opened myself to it, mm-hmm. I was I wasn't conscious of this while I was writing Signal Fires, but I was very aware of the profound interconnectedness of these seven characters whose lives span the 50 years um, that um, the book takes place during. And in the case of some of the characters, they share a secret. And I was also very interested in what it does to not just not speak of a, a secret publicly, but to be a family that holds it, not just from the public, and they speak of it behind closed doors. No, they never speak of it to each other. And what does that do to their dynamics and to their relationship? And then the other family that's very important in Signal Fires, who lives across the street, it's a very different kind of secret-keeping it could almost be, it's almost a stretch to call it secret keeping, but it's that 
fear. There's so much fear right. in that family, and it's of um, being themselves. That it's it's they have a they have a son who is this miraculous magical boy, and both parents, but particularly the dad, are so afraid to let him be him. Um, they're they're afraid that if he doesn't check all those boxes, if he isn't normal, quote unquote, um, that he it's out of love, but they're afraid that he's not going to have a successful life unless he toes the line. And so they almost, you know, they, they can't stunt his growth because he's just bigger than that. But um, in a way, that's the kind of secret life that's going on in their, in their household. I mean, the other thing that struck me about the the family, the first family that where this traumatic event has happened and it ripples through each family member's lives is people, I mean, how that shapes their sense of, you know, it shapes their moral code in some ways. It shapes the way they see themselves, their integrity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They, they do things that, um, I, I got the sense that without this traumatic event and this secret would not have been something that made up who they were. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, I very much thought of most of their lives. I mean, there's a father, a mother, and a son, and a daughter. Um, the mother's life, I don't think, is shaped as much by That's it right. because, yeah. in a way, the family dynamic is um, the mother, whose name is Mimi, she very much wants and needs life to be lovely. Mm-hmm. And it is a lovely life. And she is determined that this traumatic incident is not going to uh, change that. And she's the one, the night of the, the night in question, the night of the event, she's the one who says to her husband, we don't have to talk about this. We, we can never speak of this again. But um, her husband, Ben, and her son and daughter, Theo and Sarah, are um, consumed, mostly Theo and Sarah, because the event is their doing. Mm-hmm. They are consumed with guilt and um, almost survivor's guilt, and um, it becomes, because they don't express it, because they don't speak of it, it it grows in its power over the course of their lives. And even, even though they each grow up to have what on the surface look to be extremely successful lives, they are being um, shaped yeah. and whittled and damaged by holding um, that secret. There's a corrosiveness that, you know, those characters, Theo and Sarah, probably wouldn't identify or acknowledge, but you can see how this is working on, like I said, their integrity, their idea of who they are and how they want to be in the world. But it, it's so subtle, I think what I was writing toward, and it was a question that I had as I was working on the novel, was 
I mean, secrets have energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently heard it said that when you bury a secret, you bury it alive. Oh, that's good. I thought that was really good. That is. Um, and Carl Jung describes secrets as psychic poison. Mm. Um, and I know from my own experience of a secret being held from me that it absolutely did impact me. Not knowing <clears throat> for all of those years formed and shaped me without, obviously, without my knowing how or why. And that when it was revealed, when I did come to know the nature of that secret, it truly set me free. And even though it was painful and difficult, it was life-altering in a way that could easily have not happened if I had never discovered it. And my life would have just missed the mark, no matter how many books. Yeah, there was something about me that did not completely add up to me. And actually, I remember being with Oprah and being interviewed by Oprah and talking about my childhood with Oprah. And at one point, I looked into Oprah's eyes and she was just looking at me like, <laughs> really? <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know, but I, <clears throat> I remembered that later. Um, something didn't totally add up. Mm-hmm. And so... This was before you knew the secret. This was probably five years before I knew the secret. Oh. Um, so, yeah, her spidey sense just said mm, yeah. something. But I knew that. I had that feeling. And so I wanted these characters, I wanted them to reach a point where there was a kind of inevitability mm-hmm. that this was going to have to find its way into consciousness and into being voiced. And for a chunk of the novel, I wasn't entirely sure whether it would or it wouldn't, but I, I, want, I wanted it to, um, which didn't mean that it would. I mean, as a novelist, I don't feel like I'm the puppeteer. I mean, my characters have a certain amount of agency, and I wanted to see what would evolve, but it became clearer and clearer that it was going to have to come out because it was destroying them and they didn't, they, they didn't want to be destroyed. They, they weren't broken people. They were flawed people who had held on to a secret for far too long. Take a sip of water, and let's hear the first excerpt, <clears throat> if you're good with that. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about where we are in the, in the story, as much as without giving too much away. So we are on... New Year's Eve of 1999, going into the year 2000, the Y2K New Year's Eve, which I now think of as just adorably quaint. (laughs) I know. Oh, my God. We were all so worried the world was going to come to an end. And Theo has been away for a number of years. Theo and Sarah are at this moment in their 30s, and he has fled to Buenos Aires and really disappeared for five years and he shows up at her door and she is living in Los Angeles and she's become a successful television producer. She has little kids. She has two twin girls and she's married. Their lives couldn't be more different and they're together again for the first time in five years. Perfect. Theo knows she wants to ask him why he's come back. The better question is, why did he leave in the first place? 
but they won't talk about it. Not tonight. She tilts back her glass and downs it, wipes her mouth with the back of her hand. Their eyes meet only fleetingly. In the space between them, there is a whole lost world. Street names, phone numbers, slumber, summer barbecues, broken bones, family dinners, shadows on walls, stolen turns, dappled light playing against floorboards, French toast sizzling in an iron skillet, pages of homework strewn across the dining room table, Beethoven quartets on Saturday afternoons, the smell of black Cavendish tobacco. Seven, six, five. In his sister, her bare toes pointing toward each other, pigeon-like, her bitten nails, her small ears, he remembers everything he's tried to forget. He's not walking the road along the Shubut River now. He's not in a blur of motion in the center of a kitchen, preparing 14 dishes at once. He sits still. What choice does he have? His father's tortoise-shell reading glasses resting on top of a half-finished paperback, the creek on the third stair, icicles in winter that would hang like spears from the eaves above his bedroom window, the way his mother would answer the phone, the three musical notes of her, hello. Will you stay for a while, Sarah is asking him. He doesn't know the answer and he doesn't want to lie. I mean, she says, I'd really like you to stay for a while. She has softened. All the prickly edges he saw in her when he arrived have melted away, and what is left is a beautiful, vulnerable girl. In their backyard in Avalon, a hammock strung between two strong poplars, the two of them, deep in the ropes, limb over limb, inseparable. Two, one, happy new year. A few renegade noisemakers screech. Time seems, for an instant, suspended. Kisses, slap on, slaps on backs, the further popping of corks. He leans forward and gives his sister a hug. He fights past the lump in his throat, the sting in his eyes. I'd like that too, he says. But what he really means is that he'd like to take this suspended moment, the new millennium already careening inexorably forward, and roll it back instead, back, back through layers of time to a split second when things could have gone differently if only they had known. There must be that second, bobbing and darting in the aliveness of their shared history, unmistakable, glowing like a firefly in the darkness, if only they could pinpoint it and stop it there, right there, at the small indelible spot that somehow they missed the first time around, if only, then perhaps their whole family could begin again. Oh, who is he kidding? They both lean back on the deck chair, side by side, and gaze at the clear night sky. We'll see, he says.
That's beautiful. Jordan, don't go away. Jordan, <laughs> what's the story of the song? It's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, that's definitely a song I wrote during a moment of uncertainty where I was interested in someone and uh, wasn't sure where it was going to land. It was that kind of liminal space of being really hopeful but being very frightened. And in that moment of uncertainty, that's also filled with hope. Where did it land? (laughs) 
It didn't end well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thus the yearning in your, in your tone. Thank you. It's good to have you here. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theater with Danny Shapiro. Her new novel is titled Signal Fires, and I'm Carrie Miller. You know, I don't usually ask about titles, but this is such a beautiful image. Um, okay, where does it come from? It comes from, um, it's, it's the epigraph of the novel. It comes from a poem by Carolyn Forche, right. the great poet. And um, strangely, I, I, I discovered the poem um, on Twitter. Really? Uh-huh. Ah. Which um, I, I really sort of appreciate because whenever I've been on Twitter over the years, some, I mean, my day has not going well. <laughs> you know, my my writing day is not, and there, there's a there, there's a popular hashtag on Twitter that writers use, um, which is hashtag am writing, oh. and I always look at it and think, no, you're not, you know, <laughs> and I'm not either. We're not writing. We're on we're on this social media platform, and the Ukrainian poet um, Ilya Kaminsky, Ukrainian American poet, um, had tweeted asking people to share poems and stories and novels. Um, and memoirs that dealt in interesting ways about memory. Oh. And because I have so much respect for Ilya Kaminsky, and I'm very interested in memory, I went down the rabbit hole. And down that rabbit hole was this poem, and I read the um, that particular stanza, um, and the phrase, signal fires. I didn't, I f- had finished the novel, and I didn't have oh, a title. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. I, really? I mean, I was in search of a title, but I wasn't at that moment in search of a title. You never find a title when you're in search of a title. Um, but it just rose to the surface, and there it was. There are, some of the characters in the novel are also experiencing, I guess this comes along with shame, this powerful sense of regret. And I have been, I wonder if this is, if in your book tours you've been hearing Daniel Pink talk about, he's been everywhere talking about the science of regret. Mm. It's so interesting. Mm. Mm. One of the things that he has found in researching this is that we often regret, that regret communicates our values. We regret things that, you know, are deeply meaningful to us and that, I mean, this is his argument is that then this is, this tells us who we are and that regrets are not something to avoid, that they're to embrace. Um, There's so much regret, you know, unexpressed, buried in some ways in this, in this novel among these characters. I, I guess I was curious about how you think about that. And then I'm going to ask you about your own regrets. <laughs> just letting me know that. Yeah. So that my mind, my, so that I can have that. a little spritz, split screen in my mind. Well, that's right. When, when you say that about the characters, there, there's one character in particular that, um, that I think of, um, which is the character named Shankman. Yeah. Um, Shankman has no first name. He's just Shankman. His wife calls him Shankman. Everyone calls him <laughs> Shankman. And he is the father of Waldo, this, this really magical boy. And Shankman um, can't tolerate Waldo's specialness and his uniqueness, um, so his love for him comes out as rage. Right. And 
um, you know, he just wants him to be the kid in the outfield who is going to catch the ball, not the kid in the outfield who's dropped his mitt and is looking up at the stars because he's obsessed with the cosmos. And, um, and there's a moment late in the book where Shankman, because we've moved through a lot of large swaths of time in the novel, and there's a moment where Shankman is, um, it's 2020, um, and we briefly catch up with Shankman in 2020. And he, he is aware that he really messed up the one thing in life, the most important thing in life not to mess up, which is that he was a terrible father. Um, for this kid who he was aware always that he didn't deserve. There was a way in which he had that awareness. Right. And that having to hold that at the end or toward the, you know, in, in the later part of a life when there's probably nothing that can be done to remedy it, um, I found to be really, um, you know, a, 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 a tragedy of sorts mm-hmm. for him. Yeah, that's pretty unbearable because there's really no rewrite. I mean, unless it's, I thought a lot about that, that, you know, is that, is the only way to remedy an experience like that to be as vulnerable as you can be before your child, maybe your grown child? And I think for Shankman, he is just simply incapable of that kind of vulnerability. Um, and he, he sees the world in a very kind of com- competitive, comparative kind of way. And, you know, I think when one sees the world that way, one's always going to be feeling like one's um, left kind of in the dust in some way. There's always going to be someone who does it better or has more or what. And and so the world that is reflected back to Shankman is one in which he's uh, this kind of striver who can't get to the thing that he's striving for. and so there's, you know, this bitterness that takes hold in him. And there probably were times along the way where he could have done it differently, but he couldn't. And, you know, as the novelist, I had a lot of compassion for him, mm-hmm. but I just kept on thinking, you know, oh, Shankman, you know, can you just get out of your own way? <laughs> because he's, the, he's, to me, the really the only character. I mean, there are other, there are other regrets, but... In, in some of the other characters, but I think of them as having um, much less haunted lives, even even Sarah and Theo being haunted by this secret. I wouldn't say that that's regret. I think that that's more like they've, they've, they've stuffed it somewhere where it kind of keeps on having a heartbeat. Mm. You know, I even thought of Ben, the physician, father, whose wife, again, says, we'll never speak of this. You know... I mean, he is self-aware enough to know what that means and to understand how that has shaped his children's lives, even if he doesn't know the full extent of what it has meant for them. That has to be powerful. That's regret. true, and he, he does regret, he actively regrets um, the couple of moments in the past, and he thinks about them. One was a car trip where right. they... He could have said, let's talk about right. this. And instead, they turn on an audiobook of Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, the, the moments that are like, um, 
where the possibilities of um, a door opening up are there that then um, we pass over. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in that because Ben is certainly a character who has the awareness um, but just has this partly out of his love for his wife who doesn't want to go there and partly out of his own sort of natural reticence he just defaults to continuing to stay silent about it even though you know it never goes away for him um, and there's one moment and it's um, actually something that I added fairly fairly late in the writing where um, he quietly goes and establishes a scholarship right. in the name of, 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 of this girl who died in the tragedy um, and never tells, again, never tells a soul, just does it um, because it's the right thing to do. Um, and he really always tries to do the right thing, but he never breathes a word about it. What, what is it, do you think, that interests you so much in those moments where that, you know, life can kind of turn? Well, because life is handing you a, a, an opportunity in those moments. Life's handing, life, life's handing you a gift. Um, I think it goes back to the idea of courage and vulnerability. Like, if, if in this moment... Um, that that thing could be expressed, it would then alter everything that follows. And, and it's really, um, you know, there's a refrain in the novel, change one thing and everything changes. Um, and there are these moments that could, could go differently and don't. And the accretion of those moments, mm-hmm. the accumulation of those moments... Or maybe add up to a kind of regret that becomes impenetrable. So, how do you think about the things you regret? I I I, th- I think that was a pregnant pause. Sorry. Um, I I I think I have found a way to metabolize them by continuing to live life in the direction um, that moves me away from either behavior or choices um, that, say, I made as a young woman. Um, And it's almost like whatever those... And I don't really experience them as regrets now because I've experienced them as I wouldn't be here without that. Hmm. Um, I couldn't change one thing and everything changes. If I, had, if I had done that better, then what followed would have changed and I wouldn't have, um, I, I, you know, what, what, what happened next wouldn't have happened and then what happened next wouldn't have happened. And so, um, so it's as if the regret itself becomes diluted, mm-hmm. you know, like a bit of, you know that like colored food poisoning when you drop it into a glass of water and it just food it, coloring food food yeah <laughs> thank thank right. thank you dr miller <laughs> all right yeah i mean that sounds like a that actually sounds like a very health you are not immersed in and why would you be i mean you have 
you know, a successful career. You're, you're at the peak of your creative power, you feel, and you do not let yourself be enveloped with a sense of, if I'd only known the choice that I was making. Right. Like these, like some of these characters. I think the saving grace for me is that um, I made certainly my share of mistakes, but I was also good at getting out of them. Oh, really? Yeah. And I somehow managed to not um, do any of the things that then become permanent choices. Um, uh-huh. You know, I was married prior to, to my long and happy marriage, but I didn't have children in that marriage. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you know, moments like that that are, um, uh, you know... Uh, at one point, Sarah Wilf, the character Sarah in Signal Fires, says, um, if you, like, there, there are certain things in life that you can't alter. Right. And she ruminates about that, and she says, because she's also in the middle of a torrid, horrible, very ill-considered affair, um, and she says, if you, um, if, if, if you kill someone, you're a murderer. Um, if you, um, you know, if, if you... Are, are not faithful to your partner, you are an adulterer. You know, these are things that you are, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you can't then undo and not be. Um, and she is, she experiences herself as both of those things, um, and they're sort of intractable for her. Um, nothing for me was like that. Um, and I would also say that you know, in this journey that I've been on of making this, the discovery about um, my own identity and when I found out that my dad had not been my biological father, I was at a point in life when there still at least ostensibly was, an, was time. You know, there was time to learn what had happened right there were still people who were living where I might be able to discover things about what had happened. And I was also able to make meaning out of what had happened, out of this secret having been kept from me all my life, because I was like, wow, I'm a writer. I have written ten, <laughs> nine books at, this, at that point <laughs> that all in one way or another... Um, circled around the subject of the corrosive power of secrets and I was the secret as it turns out <laughs> right. and, and I was able I had the tools and the ability and the, um, you know, the capacity to make meaning out of what was otherwise a fairly um, traumatic and complicated discovery and then along the way over these last several years since, since Inheritance was published I've talked to a lot of people, both on my podcast and then on book tour and in my travels and people who have been in touch with me who have made similar discoveries because we're talking about regret, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that I've come to realize, and I think that this is true of secrets in general and regret, is that when we find out something is at least as important as what we find out. And so an 85-year-old woman, you know, true story, who finds out that she 
that her parents, that she had never known she was adopted. Wow. What's she going to do with that right. at 85? Um, it's, it's unlikely that she's going to be able to make meaning out of it. It's more like, I mean, if there's ever, an, I wish I hadn't known that, it might be um, when it's not possible to unpack it. Right. It's not possible to make meaning out of it either by making art out of it or becoming an activist or, I mean, there are many different, forming, you know, groups with other people who have had similar experiences. There are many different ways to make meaning. But in the absence of that, I think what is left is a lot of regret. And maybe one of the reasons why I don't experience all that much regret is because I've spent my life resting the meaning out yeah. of just about everything that has ever happened to me or every experience that I've ever had, finding the story in it, finding the meaning in it, and connecting it with something that's universal that then people can also relate to and identify with and experience. And that is a tremendously gratifying thing. I have a question about something you said a little earlier about how there were moments and decisions you made and moments in your life, the previous marriage, the decision or the the luck, I guess, since that marriage was going to end of not having children, whether you think that's luck or you, I mean, the way you describe that, I thought she has a she has a kind of slipperiness in the best way, in the best sense of the word, to have kind of mm-hmm. sluiced through mm-hmm. that situation mm-hmm. and come out unsinged mm-hmm. in some ways. I love that. I mean, <laughs> I think I had in, in equal measures in those years self-destructive tendencies and a very strong will to survive. <laughs> Both. Wow. and yeah. And... I didn't have children in that marriage because there was just no way that I was going to have children in that marriage. It wasn't, that wasn't luck. That was, I remember my mother taking me out for coffee and I told her how miserable I was and she said, when are you going to have children? (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. Thanks, mom. And, and, and I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. Um, There was something in me that was just, just on a cellular level that was just no. Um, and so that was, I think, the um, the part of me that was the good slippery part um, that could extricate myself. I think that's what you mean by that. Yeah. And um, but at the same time, I also was, um, you know, getting into all sorts of, you know, hot water during those years. I, I'm curious since you've mentioned inheritance, um, and I'm sure most people here have read it. What, what is, can I ask what your relationship is, is like today with your biological, Dan Walden, right? Um, ben uh, he's, Walden. He's, he, I, I, I refer to him as Ben Walden in the book. That's a pseudonym. Okay. Um, because I promised him and myself uh, very early on, I mean, it was so obvious that I was going to write a book about this. It was the story of my life. Um, and I was very important to me to protect his identity. Okay. And, um, and I'm sure it won't escape people's notice that 
Um, yes. Ben Wilf has the same <laughs> first name and initial as Ben Walden. I do want to say something about that. Okay, good. I started this novel 15 years ago. Oh. And Ben Walden was a fully fleshed out character. All of the characters, um, I knew them, I loved them, I understood them, and I hit a wall. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to tell the story. And I ended up putting it in a drawer. But the early parts of the novel, um, when we first meet Ben in 2010, and he's an older doctor looking out the window of his home, um, and he's, he's there on the last night that he's ever going to live in his home. His boxes are all packed up. I wrote all that um, 15 years ago. Wow. And when I returned to the novel, which is not something I ever thought I would do, um, I really felt like it was the one that got away and I wasn't going to find it again. Um, I had made you know, the discovery about my dad. I had done a great deal of thinking about interconnectedness and the ways in which why do we sometimes feel like we know someone when we, they're, they're, they're new to us, we don't know them well. What is the fabric? You know, what are the ways in which we are connected? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my thinking about that deepened um, over those years and making that discovery. And then during the pandemic, we were all experiencing that, the feeling that we are all in this together and that interdependence and that interconnectedness. And so I, re- I returned to the novel and I did crack it open. And it being 2020 and it being the pandemic actually was the thing that allowed me to crack it open because I thought, who would these characters be now 10 years later? Mm. And it allowed me back in. But when I finished the novel and it was in manuscript, I gave it to my son, um, who's an early reader of mine. He's a wonderful reader. And he read the pages, he read the manuscript, and he said, Mom, Ben is just like... And then he said the real name of my biological father. He's just like him. And I thought, Mike, he is. You're right, he is. It was as if I had conjured him 15 years earlier, and he returned to me. I mean, he, I, I conjured someone that I did not know existed um, in some way that I will never fully understand. But readers would think that I probably created that character after those experiences, but I didn't. Um, In regard to my biological father, um, one thing I'll say is that part of my, my, I don't want to say deal, because that sounds, that's not right. Part of our understanding is I'm not going to write about him again. Um, I don't really talk about our current relationship because it feels like we wouldn't be able to really have a current relationship if I continued to talk about it publicly. Mm -hmm. But I will say that the thing that um, is the undercurrent of that relationship and the thing that made that relationship possible is kindness. That everyone behaved, everyone brought their best self to that discovery not necessarily immediately, um, because it's a, such a shocking and strange thing to learn, and you know you're dealing with a relationship that there's no playbook for, and with people's um, expectations of privacy and 
the idea that this is this was a secret that could never come to light. But of course, you know, we're living in a time when hundreds of thousands of those exactly those kinds of secrets are coming to light. Right. But there was a tremendous amount of of kindness there, which I have come to learn is actually an ethical term. Um, you know, one of the things I did on tour for inheritance is I went to bioethics programs a whole bunch and spoke to bioethics professors and students. Wow. And at one of them, it was at Johns Hopkins, the head of the bioethics program and I were talking and she said, I, I said to her, the way that I think of my relationship with, 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 with him is that it's based on, on kindness. And I know that that's not an ethical term. And she just paused and she looked at me and she said, oh, that is an ethical term. Hmm. That's something, kindness is something we talk about all the time. Wow. So the relationship continues yeah, it does. in a you way know, that is gratifying to you. What I would say is that one of the things, I kept on asking myself all through this journey, what am I learning that is um, universal? What am I learning that is that this experience is teaching me that I wouldn't have been able to learn otherwise and that is revelatory in any way. And one of the things I'm learning is that our families are the people that we've grown up with. Full stop. There is, they're, they're the people that we've grappled with. You know, that passage that you had me read about Theo and Sarah, right. that's their shared yeah. history. Right. The fact that they happen to be biological, biological siblings is... Um, not incidental to that shared history, but it's not that shared history. And so the feeling of being a family, I think, is um, probably impossible to have with people with whom one doesn't have that shared history. But there, and there is also the biological connection of familiarity, which is something that is so strange and eerie to discover <laughs> when you didn't have it right. and you didn't know you didn't have it and then you discover it and it's really like a certain kind of way of being in the world is mirrored back at you i mean i have the same gestures as my biological father we like the same writers. He's a very wow. good writer. I mean, um, we share... I understood where some of my temperament came from. Um, and so he is profoundly familiar to me, but he doesn't feel like my father. Wow. Would you read one, one other excerpt? So just to set this up a little bit, this is um, a scene between... Waldo and his dad um, and um, Waldo has um, witnessed something fairly profound and he's trying to make sense of it and he's with his parents in a car do you think it's true dad Waldo asks the iPad is tucked under his arm he's never going to let it out of his sight again if he can help it if she can help it Alice understands, Alice is Waldo's mother, Alice understands that for Waldo, the device is a lifeline. Do you think it's true that I helped the lady, Mrs. Wilf? Alice watches the back of Shankman's head. 
say the right thing for once. Shankman takes a moment instead of his usual barking back. I do, actually. He clears his throat multiple times, an old nervous habit. Even though Alice can't see his face, she can feel him, searching for the words. Shankman used to do this when they were first together, when he was trying to express his love for her and didn't know how. Her heart aches for him just a tiny bit. I think this falls under the category of things we can't understand, he says, but let me try. I have a story to tell you, Waldo. You know Dr. Wilf? Don't be mad at me, Dad. Last night I was showing him... Shankman shakes his head. I'm not mad. But I want you to know that you've met Dr. Wilf before, a long time ago. His eyes meet Alice's in the rearview mirror. Yes, this. Go ahead. She's always wondered if they should tell Waldo about the day he was born. Shankman and she rarely discuss it anymore, but it's a current that runs between them. At school plays, when they grab each other's hand as Waldo recites his lines, at the, win- at, at the winter solstice concert, his little face glowing in the third row, at the educational psychologist appointment, when they were first told that Waldo's IQ was genius level. It all so easily could have been otherwise. She knows that she and Shankman both carry in their lonely hearts the shadow story, the one in which Benjamin Wilf was not across the street unloading groceries from his car, the one in which the ambulance came too late, the one in which Waldo Shankman did not live to become this strange and serious, miraculous boy. Dr. Wilf is the reason you're here, Shankman says. Dr. Wilf saved your life. As Shankman tells Waldo just the bare minimum of detail, trying not to scare him. You came early. We couldn't get to the hospital in time. Dr. Wilf delivered you right there on the kitchen floor. Alice notes that Waldo doesn't seem in the least surprised. He's nodding his head as if this were not news to him. Maybe he's in shock. Maybe this is too much. Alice rushes in to fill the gap. We don't need to talk about it now if you don't want to, she says. We can just... Yeah, Waldo says. He's looking straight ahead, though not at anything in particular. Everything is connected. Everything. The lady, the doctor, me, you. It's like we're part of a galactic supercluster. Alice looks to see whether Shankman's shoulders are inching up. Let it go. She beams the thought at him but she can already see that he's going to let it go. Tell me more, Shankman says, his voice more gentle than she's heard it in years. Tell me more about the galactic supercluster. A supercluster is a large group of smaller galaxy clusters. Our supercluster is called Laniakea. Waldo speaks rapidly, as if Shankman might shut him down. Superclusters are the largest known structures in the universe. The existence of them means that not all galaxies are the same. Some are drawn together in groups. Others are alone in large voids of space. He sounds almost as if he were reciting something from a textbook by memory, like he's trying to say something bigger, deeper, private thoughts for which he doesn't have language. Everything is connected. 
got me feeling mighty fine When you put me at the end of your line How could you think I'm gonna stay When you never walk my way now Ooh, like a flower I I need sunlight But you keep me in your shadow One more time, hold me like a man. One more night, one more night. Look me in the eye. I wanna be the fire in your life. Oh, in your life, it's enough to say. Shroud you in a holy glaze, but ooh, you're melting now. The rust is coming out. No, you're not gold and silver. No, call me one more time. Hold me like a man. Jordan Myers. Thank you. Thank you. I shouldn't say this, but this will be my favorite conversation of the season. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. Loved it. 